We just started a new semester at the seminary this last week, and so my mind's thinking about teaching and education. And, and one of the things that you do in education, one of the things we try to do at the seminary is think when someone graduates from our seminary, what kinds of things we want them to know? What do we want them to be ready to do? And in some ways, the, the book of Proverbs is written from a father to a son saying, these are the kinds of things I want you to know when you get out of my house, when you head out into the world. And as you think about your children, as you think about working with your grandchildren, thinking when they move out of the home, what is it that they need to be ready for? Well, one of the things that Solomon is concerned about in the book of Proverbs is that his son would be ready for marriage. In particular, that he would be ready to have a faithful marriage. And we know that because he spends a decent amount of time in the book addressing these issues. And we're going to see one in the chapter we'll look at this evening in Proverbs chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open up to Proverbs chapter 5. We'll be looking at the whole chapter this evening, the whole section in which Solomon is writing to his son, speaking to his son, and encouraging him to, to avoid adultery. In Proverbs chapter 5. And he does so in various ways, kind of breaks down in some ways into to kind of four sections. The first, in verses 1 to 6, he, he gives an introduction and warns him to avoid adultery by embracing biblical wisdom so that he would not be uh, deceived by the adulteress. And then in verses 7 to 14, he urges him to avoid adultery by seeing its end of destruction, to count and consider the cost And then in verses 15 to 20, he encourages him to avoid adultery by uh, embracing the blessing and security of marital intimacy. And then finally, in verses 21 to 23, he urges him to avoid adultery by remembering God's perfect justice. So let's look through this chapter this evening and see Solomon's warning and urging to us to avoid adultery, to flee the folly of immorality. So I mentioned the first six verses are kind of an introduction, and yet it's already a warning against what Solomon's concerned about. In verse 1, he begins as we see him often begin. My son, give attention to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding. Now, there might not be any significance in this, but but so far he's usually said my words, my sayings, my teachings. Uh, Here he, he gets beyond the specifics to the content behind it to his wisdom, to his understanding, which may be an indication that as the son goes out, it is important for him to remember the specific words of what his father had said, but also to see the principles behind them and to be able to put them into practice in light of other situations he might face. And so here, keep in mind this wisdom, these principles, this understanding that will guide you. Verse 2, so that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. That you would be able to guard or to keep discretion and your lips would continue to speak knowledge, to speak what is true. Now, in some ways, that was kind of interesting to me why he would say that. But I think it probably in some ways is related to the next verse. Because he gives the reason for this call in verses 1 and 2. Why? For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. 
One of the ways that he's going to guard himself from the, the lips of the adulteress is to have the truth on his lips. And probably a great example of this is found in the scripture of, of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. As Potiphar comes to Joseph and says, lie with me, what is on Joseph's lips? The truth. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? And so his lips were trained to speak what is true so that he would not listen to the lies of the adulteress. And in verse 3, Solomon is warning his son about the deceptive and smooth speech of the adulteress. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. So I think the reference to the lips is the idea of what she says. And it's sweet. It's enticing. It's like drippings from honey. And it's smooth and flattering like oil. The adulteress here, uh, you might have a translation that says the foreign woman or the strange woman. Uh, I think the, the language here is basically saying the person that's not your wife. It could be that she's not meant to be a wife because uh, she's not part of the, the community of Israel and so therefore is an outsider in that sense. But I think more broadly, it's simply outside of the only place in which you can have this kind of relationship in marriage. So any woman outside of that is an outside woman, a strange woman, and therefore would be an adulteress if you pursue her in a sexual relationship. But in verse 4, we see the reminder of what's neat, what happens. Ultimately, this smooth speech sounds so good, and yet in the end, verse 4, afterwards, the sweetness of her honey is actually bitter as wormwood. And the smoothness of her speech is actually sharp as a two-edged sword. It may have looked good. It may have sounded good. But as saw it put in one way, honey is sweet, but the bee stings. And Solomon here is reminding his son, yes, sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. Yeah, it might look like the person who is living this kind of lifestyle is having a great life. But we don't always see the end results. We don't always see what ultimately happens. What ultimately happens is bitterness and pain. And so when you hear this smooth and deceptive speech, don't be fooled. Don't believe the person who is not your spouse who says, I really understand you. I really care for you. In fact, the very moment you begin to see speech that's moving into the realm of sexual realities, sexual banter, inappropriate comments, inappropriate jokes, the moment that begins to happen, you need to begin to to turn away and to see this speech is not truth speech. This is not understanding speech. This is not discretion and knowledge. Because verse 5, her feet go down to death. Where she is headed, her feet, they are headed to death. And so is anyone who goes with her. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Because, verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. She gives no thought to God's truth and God's ways. She's not thinking about that, and therefore her ways are unstable. And she does not even know it. 
Without God, there is no moral compass. There's no way for her to even understand what is good and what is wrong. And so why would you listen to her? She doesn't know the paths of life. She's unstable. So don't listen to her speech. Listen to God's. Now, Solomon is writing to his son, but we could easily reverse this. Don't listen to his speech. Don't listen to him as he's trying to draw you away, young lady, or even older lady. Because the end is the path of death, not the path of life. So Solomon begins by urging us to avoid adultery, by embracing the truth of wisdom so that we will not be deceived by smooth and flattering speech. And in verse 7, he, he moves on and expands in some ways on what will happen and says, you need to avoid adultery by seeing that its end is utter destruction. And so count the cost before you go down this path. Verse 7, now then, my sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Now, why does he say sons here? Every point up until this time, he says, my son, why does he say sons here? And I don't know that we can say for certain, but I think it certainly makes sense that he says sons here because he's now going to be talking about not just his son, but his son's sons and thinking about sons down his generation, those who would come from him. Because what he's going to discuss here is basically the reality that when you commit adultery, you are harming the whole line, the whole lineage. You're destroying not just yourself, but those who come from you. And so here he, he points out all of those on my, in my generation. As one commentator put it, one weak link in the chain can ruin the family's future. And so do not depart from the words of my mouth. Instead, verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. It's a very similar idea to, to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. Or Jesus in Matthew 5, if your right eye offends you, cut it out. If your right eye offends you, cut it off. Don't even begin to, to indulge in these things. Don't go near it. Go as far away as possible. And so here is a great reminder for us to, to make sure that we are not going near, to keep our path far from this path of adultery. And so it might not be the door of her house for you. It might be the internet access that you have. It might be the entertainment habits that you have. If I encourage you, think about the movies that you watch, the TV shows that you watch, the songs that you listen to. Are they constantly celebrating sexual intimacy outside of marriage? Are they constantly highlighting these things as if this is good and healthy? And you are beginning to allow your heart to be shaped in thinking, maybe it's not that bad after all. Instead of thinking, no, I don't want to get near it. It might mean cut off ties with those friends. It might mean stop going to that coffee shop or restaurant where that person is. It might even mean 
quit your job and work somewhere else. Do whatever you need to do so that you will not go near this man or this woman that is a temptation for you to commit adultery. And certainly as parents, it would be wise for us to think about safeguards for our children. And if I could just encourage you in one aspect of this, don't think social media is safe. It's so easy for people's hearts to be pulled away by the things that they're seeing on Instagram and watching on TikTok and and, and allowing them to begin to think about men and women in particular ways. And so you may have a filter, but it may not filter those things out. Be on guard. Don't allow yourself to go near. Keep your way far from her or what will happen. And verses 9 to 14 really walk through a, a disaster. The incredible, devastating consequences of being unfaithful in marriage. Verse 9, you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. It's hard to know exactly what's being said here. I I think most likely what's happening is the, the family of this woman, perhaps her husband, perhaps her father, is now calling you to pay for the disasters of of the adultery that is calling Solomon's son here to basically make payment for what he has done. And the payment that he has to make is going to be such that he's practically an indentured slave. It might be an extortioner of some kind. It might be a penalty of a judge. The point here that Solomon is making is you will end up spending your strength and your years not to provide for your family as is right and good, but for someone else. Others, those who aren't really caring about you, but are instead cruel. And those who are an alien, again, those who are outside of this relationship in which uh, sexual relations are supposed to happen. Now, in our day, we don't necessarily have the same kind of penalties in place. We don't require death. There's not judicial reckonings, often with adultery. But there are still ramifications. It might be alimony payments, child support. It might be legal costs. Certainly, there's the possibility of of sexually transmitted diseases. And there is the reality of, of destroyed homes. And if nothing else is one commentator put it, there's the constant thought of, if only, the life that I could have enjoyed with my wife, with my children, is now gone. And so in verse 11, we find this man, in a sense, putting his head in his hands and groaning at the end. You groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, consumed because you wasted your life on things that did not matter. And then you cry out in verse 12, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. It's interesting as the the son who's given into adultery describes what has happened. There's a few things that stand out. One is he 
recognizes I'm to blame. Solomon isn't here saying, if only that woman hadn't come around. Solomon here is definitely recognizing, no, what have you done? You hated these things. And the son is recognizing that himself. I have hated instruction. My heart spurned reproof. And it wasn't just my father. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. Others were warning of this. Others were pointing this out. And I ignored it. And the language he uses is almost such that you wonder, could this person have possibly been been really saved if they hated and spurned God's instruction and reproof? But perhaps, in light of the fact that the son is acknowledging these things, it might be, in a sense, a, a, a true remorse and regret for sin. Yes, I recognize I have done these things, but verse 14, I was almost in ruin, utter ruin. I don't think almost is the best translation there. I think actually soon is a better translation. Because I don't think that the whole context would say, it was was almost there, but I avoided it. The word actually can't have the idea of soon. I think that fits much better. Because he didn't expect to be where he ended up. And it happened so much faster than he thought, because that's how sin works. It goes farther than we thought, faster than we thought. And so soon, I am in utter ruin. In the midst of the assembly in the congregation, it is public. Perhaps here there is an indication of a judicial judgment against him. But certainly it is now public, and his shame and dishonor and disgrace are public. And now he looks back and wishes he had not done what he's done, but it's too late. The damage has been done, and it cannot be undone. So Solomon urges us, avoid adultery, because you see how devastating it is. Consider the cost. Now, if we come to verse 15, at this point, To this point in time in the passage, you might almost think that Solomon's saying, hey, it's better just to be chaste. That sex is bad, sex is evil, and so avoid it at all costs. But in verse 15, we we see that that's not the biblical answer. I've heard it put before that, that there's, in a sense, we could think of three different views of sexual relations. That one is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's basically the idea that Sexual relations aren't really good. In fact, it's better if you avoid them, which is why if you really want to to be really committed to God as a priest or as a nun, you will be a virgin. You'll be chaste. And so if you have to, it's okay, but it's better not to actually engage in these things. And so we might call that a, a low view of sex. Our culture would have a higher view of sex than that. They'd say sex is great, And really, any way you do it is good. And so, never be ashamed about any kind of sexual activity. And how has that worked out for our culture? It seems the only safeguard that anyone wants to put in place is consent. And yet, that gets really messy if that's the only safeguard you have in place. But the biblical view of sex is actually much higher than that. that Sex is a good and gracious gift from God. And is to be greatly enjoyed within the committed relationship of a husband and a wife 
to each other. And sometimes we kind of mix these as we think about sexual relations and talk about them. It's almost as if we teach our children, sex is really bad, but wait until you get into marriage and then you can do it. Instead of saying, no, sex is a wonderful gift from God and is meant to be enjoyed, but only in the way that God intended for it to be enjoyed. And so in verses 15 to 20, Solomon says, avoid adultery by finding joy and refreshment and blessing and security in marital intimacy. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. And I think the best way to understand the water imagery throughout here is the idea of of satisfying a desire. Here it would be a sexual desire. Find satisfaction, where? From your own cistern and your own well. Satisfy your thirst from your own supply. And and it's probably helpful to, to keep in mind, in this kind of a culture, you really needed a cistern and well to survive. You need water, and the way you get water is through something like that. And if you have it, you're in a really good place. And Solomon says, in your marriage, you have it. You have what you need. And so be satisfied with what God has provided for you in your marriage. Now, verse 16 is a verse that's proved difficult. And most modern translations take it the same way, and I think they take it rightly this way. And what it says is this, Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... What does Solomon mean when he talks about your streams being dispersed abroad? Again, I think the best way to understand the water imagery here is the husband receiving sexual satisfaction. And the point there is you have your own well and your own cistern. Why would you go out to the streets to satisfy your thirst? Why would you go to the public supply? Why would you go out to prostitutes and things like that? instead of your own cistern. This is not meant to be public. This is meant to be private. This is meant to be personal. Potentially, there is a way of understanding, and I I don't know that it's the best way to understand it, but it's certainly a, a biblical principle, that if you do not drink from your own cistern, if the husband is not pursuing his sexual satisfaction with his wife, that she will also begin to look elsewhere. And again, I think that's a biblical idea. Certainly, 1 Corinthians 7 would talk about that. And so Solomon isn't telling the husband, only be selfishly looking for your own satisfaction. He's saying, what's meant to satisfy you is this relationship, both husband and wife. So neither of you should be looking outside. Neither of you should be going outside. It should not be happening in the streets. It should be happening in your own cistern, your own well. Verse 17, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. That it is two becoming one flesh. It's not open. It is a closed relationship. One in which they are to find satisfaction with each other. Verse 19, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. I think it is in some senses a prayer, let your fountain be blessed. It's, it's Solomon saying, may, may you find all the satisfaction you need from your spouse. May it be blessed so that as you come and you enjoy it, you would find God's blessing so that you could rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
wife of your youth isn't your young wife. It's the wife that you had when you first got married, when you probably got married young, which is what happened in that culture. So the point there is God supplied you what you needed. He gave you your wife. So you shouldn't be looking for anything else. Be satisfied with God's good gift to you and the wife of your youth. Verse 19, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now, Solomon uses similar language in, in the Song of Solomon to describe the marriage relationship. And, and if you're like me, you probably don't think, boy, that's, that's a great way to talk to your spouse. You're like a, a graceful doe. You know, you're, this is, when I think of you, I think of mountain goats. Um, that's not our culture. But it was their culture. And I don't know that we have a perfect parallel. We do talk about lovebirds, which maybe isn't the most flattering thing when you think about it. But the idea is, this is a cultural way to say, she is charming. She's beautiful. And therefore, be satisfied in that. And the language does indicate an exhilaration, a kind of ecstasy, in which you're saying, you are meant to find pleasure in your spouse. And this is, I think, an important reminder that from a biblical perspective, one of the purposes of sexual relations is pleasure. Certainly procreation is a part of it, but it's also meant for you to find joy and physical satisfaction, exhilaration. And the language is almost the idea of being intoxicated with her love. So you are overwhelmed as you experience what you were meant to experience in this relationship. So that, verse 20, it should be shocking to you that you would ever consider doing anything else. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Again, why would you go outside of what God intended when you have everything you need right here? How do we avoid adultery? By being satisfied with what we already have. If you just finished your Thanksgiving dinner and, and someone says, you know what? I've got a banquet TV dinner. I want to pop in the microwave. What do you think? I hope you'd say, you know what? Not really interested. Now, if you were hungry, you might say, you know what? That doesn't sound too bad. But when you're satisfied, that has no appeal. And when you're satisfied in your marriage relationship, You don't need to look outside of it. Solomon says, avoid adultery by finding joy and refreshment and satisfaction within the marital union. But then he finishes in verses 21-23 with a reminder of divine justice. Avoid adultery by remembering that God will enact perfect justice. Perhaps... Someone might come to this point in Solomon's warning and say, you know what? I think I can avoid the downfall. We can be secretive. No one needs to find out. And it won't really harm us. And Solomon in verse 21 says, no, no. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. It's really straight in front of him. He's not missing it. It's not somewhere in his peripheral. He's looking right at it. And he watches all his paths. 
This is a principle that goes beyond the issues of adultery. This is the ways of a man. Everything we're doing. All of our paths. God sees. God knows. And Solomon says, be sure your sin will find you out. Verses 22-23. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of sin. It is an enslaving sin. And it will bring you down. And he will die for lack of instruction. In the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Several times in this chapter, Solomon's emphasized the reality of death as the result of these things. Now, you may not remember, because it's been a while since we were in chapter 4, but chapter 4 constantly was emphasizing life. The way of wisdom is a way of life. It's a way of blessing. It's a way of joy and satisfaction. And Solomon here is saying the way of adultery is the way of death, is the way of destruction. There's a way of, of longing and ultimately unfulfilled desires. So do not go down that path. Because it will destroy you. If I could encourage us in three ways as we, we finish up. The first is that we, as good parents like Solomon, should teach our children about issues of sexual immorality. Recognizing there are appropriate ways and appropriate times and appropriate ages to to address these things. But I think that this way, your, your children will learn about sex. They may not learn it from you, or they may learn from you that perhaps sex is not something important, so you don't need to talk about it. Or that sex is not a good thing. But they'll learn something about it. And what do you want them to learn? God's perspective. And so be thinking of what I can do to make sure that my children hear from me what God says about these things. Secondly, This is a vivid reminder of the destructiveness of sin. So often as I have opportunities to interact with people or or see families that have been affected by unfaithfulness in marriage, it really does break your heart as you just see how messy it is, how hard it is, how destructive it is. For everyone involved. The person who is involved in the sin is bound. They're in cords. They're headed to destruction. The innocent spouse, their life is turned upside down. Children are harmed by these things. And we need to constantly keep that in mind because as this passage reminds us, you cannot undo that damage. cannot undo it. And so do not go near her door. Finally, even as you cannot undo the temporal, physical consequences of this sin, the scripture does say there is forgiveness. 
And again, I think of a biblical example, David and Bathsheba. It destroyed David's family. And yet, David was able to say, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. His iniquity is covered. So if I could say this to you, if you're walking down this path, get away as fast as possible. If you have walked down this path, it's not too late to seek forgiveness. So come to God. Confess your sin. Speak as this son and says, don't blame it on anyone else. Don't say I couldn't help it. Don't say it's her fault or it's his fault. I ignored the warnings. And yet, Lord, I need your forgiveness. And the scripture would tell you that if you truly seek that, you will find it. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered as we think again about the seriousness of sin. Lord, help us to be on guard. Help us to keep far away from adultery. Help us to remember you see our ways. We thank you, Lord, that you are still a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that you do forgive the sins from one generation to another. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.